0: do talk about specifics, but at the same time, talk about universality, how you grew up, how I grew up. We have different experiences. Those are specific experiences, but perhaps it will still lead to a common appeal. That's the key, is that the world is so much more interesting. The world is so much better because of diversity. Right, I mean, what a boring world it will be if everything is just one way of
1: thinking. Heyo, welcome to the Asian Detox Podcast, the podcast where we boldly reclaim Asian American prosperity. We have relatable conversations about how being Asian-American shows up in our day-to-day lives, how money is deeply embedded in our culture, and how you can choose to define your own version of success in a world that tries to tell us how to be. I'm your host, TJ Way, your hashtag very Asian, non-binary, gluten and dairy-free money habits coach, and I want you to know that you don't have to live in the boxes other people put you in. You can design your abundant life in a way that honors your heritage, while enjoying a life of ease and alignment. And you can do it while making money and building generational wealth. Today, I am so happy to have Julia Wong as our guest on the podcast. Julia Y.C. Wong is the founder and CEO of InterTrend Communications, a multicultural creative agency known in the industry for creating deeply resonant and exceptional consumer experiences for leading brands. Taiwanese-American-born, Raised and educated in Japan and Taiwan, Huang went to grad school to study communications at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Having been raised in different cultural environments, Huang stresses the importance of community and civic engagement. She has received many accolades for her philanthropic activities, supporting arts and culture, both locally and globally. Welcome to the podcast, Julia.
0: Thank you. Thank you for having me and congratulations on the podcast and on your way to uh, retire by 40. I mean, <laughs> when I grow up, I want to be just like you. So I mean, congratulations and everything.
1: Thank you. Thank you. Why don't you let the audience know where they can best follow you and the work you're doing?
0: So for a company uh, website, it's intertrend.com that just really kind of aggregates all the the work that we have been doing. So that probably is the best way to have a whole array of our work.
1: Awesome, and we will have that in the show notes so that it's easily accessible for everybody who's listening. I want to start out with a bit of an icebreaker. If your parents were to run into an acquaintance at a grocery store, how would they explain (laughs) what you do? What a great question. They
0: would, for the
1: longest time,
0: as I was in advertising and I tried to explain a little bit in terms of what I did and what I do. You know, they had a very good comeback in terms of like saying that, oh, so you lie for a living. <laughs> oh, no. You know, I mean, it's like, that it was a long time ago. So, I uh, mean, since then, they've come around in terms of accepting that I do have a legitimate job, which is in, in the world of advertising. But now they do tell people that I'm in
1: uh, marketing and communications. I think that when you described that, that sounded like something my dad would say. <laughs> like, he would purposely take whatever I was proud of and just poke a hole in it just to make sure. I know. I- <laughs> I know. And and you being an Asian American as
0: well, you know, it's it's so easy for the parents to have a particular label, right? Like, Mm -hmm. oh, she's a doctor. Um, He is an accountant. She is a dentist. But it was very, for the longest time, I think it was very difficult for them to explain to, like you said, to an acquaintance or, or, you know, family members, what exactly is an advertising and marketing.
1: And I I think I have my own theory here specifically for your family because more of like that immigrant transition into the English language as well. But why do you think that is that we typically see that the Asian American parents have like set roles that they know are good jobs and others that they struggle to understand, much less explain?
0: You just really nail it in, in terms of, I almost feel like Asian American parents have a list of good jobs. And that has never changed in the past 50 years, actually, right? Like, it, mm. like, you're a doctor, you're a dentist, you're an accountant, you're a professor, you know, even to be able to have that one word yes. to explain it is a little bit easier for them. And, I, you know, what is your theory? You said <laughs> that you have your own theory.
1: So, well, the way you articulated that was actually really good because what went through my head when you said one word, I was like, those are all titles that translate, at least for me, my parents are um, Taiwan raised, but my grandparents are from China. So to them, that's something that they can do a direct translation into a career that they could see from their own upbringing in their own Mm -hmm. language. And I don't know what it's like on their end to like have worked a career in Taiwan, but I don't know like that there's an easy explanation when you try to translate into somebody's native language the types of titles that we have, like I used to be a project manager. I don't know what that is in Chinese. That's so true. Like in
0: advertising, if you say in, in, in Chinese and Mandarin, you say "guang and it Mm -hmm. seems as though you're selling, Mm -hmm. selling like yellow page ads, right? Is that what you, is that what you do? Are you selling a yellow page ad on, on a newspaper? But I think that they're now self-educated in that sense so that, and understands a little bit in terms of the array of professional jobs that are available to everyone, so.
1: Yeah, and I mean, those titles have definitely expanded since our parents were yes. in the working field. For <laughs> it's so true, because I remember being in first grade and a teacher asked us to draw what I wanted to be when I grew up. Mm-hmm. How do you draw a project manager? and did you want to be a project manager growing up i didn't but i like because of the way she phrased that question right to Mm -hmm. me it was something that i had to be able to visualize and see yes so i remember going to like the bank teller and being like what do you do what is this yes i mean that
0: that's actually a good point is that like how do you say you're a programmer or coder Right. Like if you want to grow up to be a doctor, you have that white robe and and the stethoscope. you know, scope in terms of that. But if you are like if if you say you're in I.T., what exactly do you draw? Like, I don't know. I mean, computers and things like that. I, that's very interesting.
1: Yeah. And well, these days you could draw a computer in front of a random person and that could be any job because we're doing them online. Now. <laughs> that's true. That's true an online, you know, purchaser. (laughs) Yes, for sure. So I do want to ask because you were born in America, but then you were raised in Taiwan and Japan before coming back. What was that journey like? How old were you when you moved away from America? And what made you come back to America?
0: Actually, I wasn't born in the United States. I was actually born and raised in Japan and then went back to Taiwan for college, and then came to the United States uh, for grad
1: school. So okay. I'm a first-generation immigrant. All right. So what was that transition like? You, you immigrated to two different places. Like, What would you say either your biggest lesson was or your biggest challenge was through those moves?
0: You know, I've been thinking about, thinking about that question quite a bit in terms of belonging, mm. in terms of that. And then because of the fact that I moved so much, I also transferred a lot. Uh, in a school. So, from that standpoint, I think I learned quite early on how to adjust and how to kind of blend into an environment. Mm. But nowadays, I think a little bit in terms of belonging because people ask, where do you think is home? You know, which country do you feel the most comfortable in? And that answer is a little bit blurred now. In terms of Taiwan, not exactly a home, and Japan is definitely not, and I call United States, America, home now, Mm -hmm. but at the same time, a lot of times, you know, especially with a lot of things that are happening in the society, sometimes I feel like, oh, is this really, is this really your home? Is this really your country? You know.
1: Yes. Yeah. That's tough. So, when you were raised in Japan, did you always feel like you were a foreigner? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. You know, Japan is—it's a
0: wonderful, lovely country, but for the longest time, they were not, and I, and I wouldn't even say that they are still. I mean, they—they they must be the most hospitable country to tourists mm-hmm. and the most polite, but. For the longest time, I do not think that they really liked outsider coming in. Yeah. I think at one point, my parents did think about becoming a Japanese citizen, but Japan doesn't make it very easy for any any foreigners. You know, first mm-hmm. is that you have to change your family name. Oh, really? Yeah. So like in the United States, I kept Huang, uh-huh. which is Huang my Chinese name, but a lot of our family friends who decided to become a Japanese uh, national had to adopt to a Japanese uh, family name.
1: Oh, wow. I'm just thinking of that in terms of like, I know that my last name Wei doesn't have a Japanese reading. Mm -mm. And my given characters actually don't either. So... I actually took Japanese in high school and that was one thing my teacher went through the whole dictionary and tried to figure it out and she was like, Nope, we don't got it. So Yes. Yes. That would have been I mean, there are outliers, you know, don't get me wrong. I mean, like, so
0: for example, Softbanks, um, a chairman, so Masayoshi, who is actually Korean. Japanese. Mm. I mean, he kept his last name. Uh, there are outliers, but most of the time, I at least in my uh, my generation, a lot of our family friends, like Wang, mm-hmm. Wang, they changed it to Oji. Uh, so it, instead of Wang, it's now Oji. So they oh, had wow. to change it to a Japanese last name. Wow. That's a lot. That was a kind of like a long answer to the question was that I don't think that Japan really made us feel like we were really a part Mm -hmm. of society. And I think my parents also decided to leave early on. Uh, I think a lot of our family friends who made Japan their home, I'm pretty sure that they feel at home. But if you remember the book and the, of course, now an Apple TV show called Pachinko, Mm. that kind of in some ways, in a very dramatic way, reflects how Korean Japanese had to adapt, and and even if some of them don't even speak Korean, but they still felt like they were an outsider.
1: Right. Yeah. And and I know for a fact, right, that like the Japanese have a separate phrase, gaijing for foreigners, and mm-hmm. that is basically a slur in in some conversations that yeah, they, yeah. they separate you and. It's something unique about Japan because I know that if you go to China and you're white, then you're like welcomed like a celebrity. They stop you in the streets and they take your pictures. But in Japan, if you move over, and I've had some associates that were white that went over, they get like a separate department when they go to work in corporate Japan. Yeah. They get like a foreigner's department where they purposely separate you. Yeah. And so you never really get to feel like you got to be naturalized the way we do in America. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And, and it, you know, it goes both ways too, is that you have this department of foreigners and usually they're Anglo-Saxons. Let's, mm-hmm. let's, you know, <laughs> still tiptoe around that, that issue. Anglo-Saxons are definitely not Asian, right? right? A- Asian descent. And they do get special treatment as well both sides in terms of like, you don't really assimilate or Mm -hmm. I I wouldn't say assimilate, but you don't feel, feel like you're really, you're always gaiji, like you said.
1: Yes. Like even if you were to go into the expat areas, that would probably still be very Anglo-Saxon. Yes. Yes. I've always had that thought of like, I would love to go live internationally, but then I think about what that culture would be. And I'm like, I don't belong in the grew up here culture and I don't belong in the expat culture. But
0: I was listening to some of your podcasts and some of the things that you said is that even as an Asian American born and raised here, Mm -hmm. you know, I was really struck in terms of how you mentioned that you felt like you don't belong per se, especially like on your podcast, you mentioned like, I don't dress that part or, you know, I don't have the hairstyle for it. And so I thought that it was very interesting. I,
1: I really enjoyed listening to your uh, to your podcast. Oh, thank you. I, I do my best to talk about the, like the forgotten slices because mm-hmm. we know what media portrays us as, and that contributes to us expecting something different from our own community. Like we mm-hmm. expect others in the Asian American community to behave the way media portrays them. And that's not healthy for us because we're all human and we're all different.
0: Absolutely. Very much so. And one of the things that I know that we're kind of jumping around the topic is that one of the initiatives that we have called Make Noise Today, Mm, um, the foundation was based on narrative plenitude that uh, was made famous by Viet Nguyen, who wrote The Sympathizer. And it was really more in terms of really wanting the society, American society, uh, to understand that there are many different kinds of stories. Asian American stories. And some of them are not great stories. You know, some of them are sad stories. Some of them are happy stories. But it, it really doesn't matter that there are a narrative plenitude. So it was very important for us to talk about kind of like busting ourselves out of really just having that one Asian American story. Mm.
1: So, for our audience, would you explain more about what make noise today is, what you're doing with it, how it came to be mm-hmm. make noise today was
0: an initiative that we started actually in the height of stop asian hate- mm-hmm. It's not that I mean if you think about it, it's not that Asian hate or violence against Asians did not exist you know it's not like it just happened overnight I mean it always it always existed its just that it didn't get highlighted as much as a couple of years ago uh, during the height of pandemic. And and we we kind of know why, Mm -hmm. because of COVID and the origin of COVID and, you know, those kind of stories. But, and as you know, a lot of Stop Asian Hate initiatives came about with different organizations and everyone was just really doing their best in terms of highlighting and wanting to stop Asian hate. And so what we thought was that we really didn't want to focus too much on that on the in anger. terms of stopping the Asian mm-hmm. hate or the Asian violence. But we really wanted to make sure that the Asian stories did not stop as hashtags or just stop as as a headline on a newspaper. And really just wanted to encourage Asian Americans or friends and family of Asian Americans to tell the stories, experiences of Asian American stories, and and that's basically why we started. Make noise today was really for us to to really make noise because you know growing up as Asian Americans, I I think your generation is a little bit better, but for our generation, it was like oh you know don't speak up. Mm-hmm. It might be better if you blend in mm, mm-hmm. and it become a little bit invisible. Because if you stand out too much, mm-hmm. nothing good is going to come out of it. You know that, especially in our generation. I think that that was basically what how we were taught. Not just Asian Americans, but Asians in general. I think. And so we just wanted to to encourage people to speak up
1: and to make noise. And be a little bit annoying. <laughs> <laughs> permission to be annoying, because I, I totally hear you. To be <laughs> my parents are definitely—they are also immigrants, so they still held on to this concept of like children are meant to be seen and not heard. So we got that bit, and then as a female, that my mom was like, "Well, girl, like quiet girls attract boys." <laughs> so yes, we get those messages, and then in America, we have this model minority concept where we get held up as the of not causing trouble. So I love that when you, even the name of Make Noise Today and and saying like, be a little bit annoying, share your story, be louder. And like, we need to hear that because we're actually Mm -hmm. counteracting some societal programming that we have that has us compelled to be like in the dark. Like I found that in my business journey, getting on social media was very difficult because I was fighting that imperative. So the fact that you're at telling people and encouraging them to be more annoying, and most likely like you'll get some that find a way to be extremely annoying, but most of them <laughs> are are fighting their way all the way to neutral even. Yes.
0: Yes, it's so true. Like, you know, even during the COVID in the height of the COVID, and because I have to watch myself as well mm-hmm. too, is that I don't revert back to that state of mind like Oh, let's don't stand out, right? So even during the height of COVID, some of our younger staff members were slurred some racist statements like walking on the street. And good for them is that they spoke up and say, you know, that's not right. That's just just not right. And then my maternity instinct kind of kicked in and I said, oh my God, please don't do that. You know, mm-hmm. uh, please don't have eye contact with those people. Just keep your head down and just walk away. Right. And then I have to just really kind of have to catch myself as say, but that's not, that's not right.
1: Mm-hmm. You know,
0: you have to call people out. Yes. You have to speak up, but I, it's almost like you have to remind myself that I can't revert back. Yes. To right. What is a comfortable way of dealing with these issues?
1: Right there's what is comfortable what is safe for you as the individual I mean there's definitely situational awareness that has to go into it and that's why I've seen like there's efforts to do more self defense with Asian Americans so that they do feel comfortable if they they feel called to call in those comments and and speak mm-hmm. up that they're empowered both physically and mentally to to hold up to that but it's I agree it's not something that you get to decide yes that's how you want to show up in the world but it's not going mm-hmm. to happen every day and there's no expectation that you should, right? That when it feels right for you and you feel aligned to, to say something back, then we love that in the world. But everybody has days where they just need to feel safe or they just want to get home. They don't want to get into this argument and they're going to take what might be considered like the sa- safe or easy route. Uh, and I, I don't want anybody to feel bad that once in a while that does happen. Yes. Oh, absolutely. I I mean, even during the stop Asian hate, I talked professionally
0: to a lot of uh, people in terms of what we can do. And what I found out was that people have their own pace as well. And we have to respect that, right? Just because a particular person is not speaking up doesn't mean that they don't have a point of view. So make noise today again, in terms of narrative plenitude was really just to let people know that there are so
1: many different ways of telling our stories. I love that because it was so easy during the height of the anti-Asian hate narrative to get angry, to be defensive, mm-hmm. to fight back with fire. And telling stories that have the wide variety of the sadness or the anger or just or happy success stories, that really portrays us as whole individuals and not as the one-sided whatever's convenient for for that period in time. And we need that because yeah. it is so exhausting to be in that that fight mode. And we need that, that feeling of community, of shared stories that makes us feel less alone. Totally agree. Yeah.
0: It was exhausting, wasn't it not? I mean, it still is exhausting. When something comes up in headlines, it's like, oh, you know, you, you really sometimes feel like, when is this going to stop? And And sometimes I feel like it might never stop.
1: Yeah. Uh, And so we just have to keep on making noise. (laughs) Yeah. And I actually have mixed feelings when something comes up because at the beginning of the pandemic, I didn't follow very many Asian influencers. So I would hear about some incident and I would hear about it like once or twice and then it would be silent. And Mm -hmm. I had to look at my own like people I followed or the news I listened to and ask myself, why is it that like there's a brief mention and then nothing else. And it was like Mm -hmm. fighting both of like, I don't want something else to happen. But when it does Mm -hmm. happen, I want everybody to hear about it.
0: Yes, very true.
1: All right. Um, But you're doing a lot of great work in these spaces. So I want to ask you, how is Intertrend engaging in deeper conversations about race, identity, culture, and communication?
0: Well, we are engaging in it and that's a good, good start, right? Like we were talking about how exhausting it is. And then sometimes you feel like, oh, because it's such a charged topic in regards to that. I mean, even within our space,
1: mm-hmm.
0: when we talk about, and I'm not going to mince words, but it, it, you know, when we talk about Asian American violence, the issue of race comes, comes up in terms of one race, you know, being pit against the other race. Mm-hmm. And then we have to, again, rein ourselves in, in terms of talking about race and inclusion. And it's not really about just Asian American race. It's about African Americans. It's about, you know, Hispanic, it's about a different race. So to answer your question is that we're, we're starting to have that uncomfortable conversation. Mm-hmm. And that conversation is really not comfortable. Because the agenda is very different from generational. And even within the Asian American market, we keep on saying we're Asian Americans, but we don't know what that means. <laughs> we don't know what that means. And and sometimes it's just convenient because going back to labeling, it's, it's so much easier if we say, oh, we're Asian America. But I mean, there's Korean American, there's Japanese American, there's Vietnamese American, Taiwanese American, mm-hmm. Chinese American, Cambodian American, Thai American. There really isn't Asian America right. market, right? It's a made up phrase. Yes. So to answer your question, it's not an easy question to answer is that we are really forcing ourselves to have that uncomfortable conversation and to to step back sometimes and look at the big picture or sometimes deep dive mm-hmm. and have that in-depth conversation in terms of what it means. And like I said, the conversation is really
1: never that comfortable. I've had these conversations with some of my business friends and you usually have to pause and you have to question why you feel a certain way. Or when you're starting to get defensive, that you need somebody to call you in and say, hey, like, do we need a breather or to look at it from a different perspective? So I commend you for doing that work. And I really appreciate that you're so conscious of it, that you recognize that it's not comfortable and you're doing it anyway.
0: And that's a good start. I mean, it's not an easy start, but that's a good start that we know that the conversation is not going to be comfortable. Like I said, it's it's a start.
1: Talking about whether or not it's comfortable, it really makes me think that sometimes, at least in my family, if it wasn't comfortable, we didn't talk about it at all. Like that's all again. <laughs> We're finding that imperative. That's great. I mean, that's a great environment
0: that you can have that conversation because sometimes
1: you know, people just kind of clam up. Yes. It's something to to practice if you're not used to it. And then like there's, outside of the the raised DEI conversations, there's the book Crucial Conversations and there's other like radical candors. This shows up in the business world all the time as a way to ensure that you're making great decisions by listening to all of the perspectives, that they're challenging your assumptions and adding the race or the other minority statuses as color to it, like really enriches it because we recognize, like we have all the stats saying that having these perspectives, gender, disability, all of those really only increases creativity. So I'm just glad to be living in a world where we're starting to do something about it. That's the
0: key is that the world is so much more interesting. The world is so much better because of diversity right i mean what a boring world it will be if everything is just one way of thinking or i think that diversity makes everything so much more interesting i i mean think food yeah <laughs> <laughs> food
1: I that's mean, what's the easiest way to relate to other cultures
0: I, I mean can you imagine if there's no diversity in food what i mean i can't i can't even fathom <laughs>
1: I would argue though, if you go to the UK, that they, they don't have as much <laughs> diversity as they could. <laughs> They're trying. They are.
0: They're trying their best. Uh I mean I, I, I do have to give our British friends a little bit of um you know, little bit of kudos is that it is getting much more interesting. It was horrible. It was horrible like decades and twenty years ago, but now it's getting quite interesting now, so
1: <laughs> Yes, for sure. So on that topic, what is your, your favorite ethnic dish? Oh, it, you know, that question comes in terms of when I go on
0: business trip. you know, long business trips. I mean, what, what do I come back and then what do I crave the most? Any kind of noodle dish, but Asian noodle dish. Yes. You know, and it has to be soup-based. We, we need to go out and eat, <laughs> Julia. <laughs> so it can be Japanese, you know, the udons and the sobas, but um, pho, you know, Vietnamese. Anything soup-based Asian noodle dish uh, is is my favorite.
1: Awesome. As a first-generation Asian American, I grew up trying to fit into the boxes other people put me in. I considered acting, voice acting, and writing as career options when I was little, but ended up joining Corporate America as an IT project manager to take the Asian parent-approved path. The good news is it's not too late for me to follow those more creative goals, but I didn't have the energy to work both my corporate job and follow those passions, and I couldn't shake the cultural directive to be financially stable so that my parents wouldn't have to worry about me. It's so ingrained in me that it's difficult to focus on more creative pursuits or what might be considered passion projects without the financial backing to support myself. That's why I'm such a big fan of building systems and financial foundations that leverage my hashtag very Asian frugal money habits and the more expansive abundance mindset that I strive to embody every day. While sitting at my corporate job feeling like there must be more to life than this, I spent years learning and absorbing information about how to become financially independent, invest in real estate and stocks, and build a business. And now, I'm on track to retire by 40. But more than that, I have the freedom to dress how I want, because how I dress now is certainly not considered professional, adopt unconventional pronouns, and work fewer hours to support my physical and mental health. I get to choose what clients I work with, who I spend time with, and what boundaries I need to set in order to keep the toxic expectations and hustle culture at bay. And I want that for you too. If you're ready to make your next big money move and build the financial foundations you need to feel like you can show up as your full self, I have an offer for you. My generational wealth building money mentorship program is three months of direct access to me, and my brain to cut through all of the noise and conflicting information on the internet and get you where you need to be financially. Get a wealth building strategy, action plan, curated resources, and emotional support to put you on the path towards your abundant life. The link is in the show notes. I do want to also highlight because we talked about like how the Asian American phrase is just like this made up phrase to try to unify us. And we talked about like the different ethnicities that you can append in front of American. But and then we have people like you who actually grew up in one country, moved to another and then came through. So there's our ethnic identity. And then there's also wherever either our parents were raised or where we ourselves were raised that might be different than if we were to check a box on the U.S. census to Mm -hmm. say what identity we are.
0: Yeah. And I'm thinking about like in my profession, because we're a multicultural agency, as you introduced me, is that, you know, even multicultural marketing has evolved quite a bit. In the very beginning, the multicultural marketing, and and I'm oversimplifying this, you know, the caveat is that I'm oversimplifying it without being too academic or, Mm -hmm. you know, worse, I mean, without being too political is that Multicultural marketing stemmed from demographic. Census information is that a lot of, you know, the census information showed that there is a diversity in our world. Now it's, I mean, because it was other. Right. Because we, we were finally officially let into the country. Yes. But Asian Americans are now like part of the census information. And, you know, the funny thing was that a lot of brands were just like like saying that, oh my God, look at this segment. Look <laughs> at this segment. Where did of it people. come from? <laughs> yeah. And they're, they're buying stuff. You know, Asian Americans are buying things. And so multicultural marketing stemmed from the demographic information that was available to the brands. But in the past 30 years, even multicultural marketing has evolved quite a bit mm-hmm. in terms of what it means. And then like i said without getting too political or philosophical or too ideological there's in the past 10 years i would say that there's a a, a little bit of discussion in terms of what multiculturalism means mm. right like in terms of like is it is it really necessary oh is it that important to only focus on people's a different different point of view Can not we all get to to get get along? Can we
1: all be the same, have the same solutions? Yes.
0: So there's that conversation in terms of total marketing being kind of like a a dirty word Mm. in this world of multicultural marketing. And so in the past couple of years, you know, we have been embarking on this study of polyculturalism is it time for us to be talking about polyculturalism versus multiculturalism? Because multiculturalism for the longest time has been used to like really talk about, Oh, it's so difficult to target multicultural market because it's so segmented. Mm. It's so different. Can't we look at people's, you know, common thread? and have, like you said, a common solution to to talk to this market. So we embarked on this study in terms of really talking about, perhaps we should be talking about polyculturalism, Mm -hmm. and not in the standpoint of saying that, oh, there's one solution to all the issues or to all the challenges, but do talk about specifics. But at the same time, talk about universality. Like, mm. you know, we we all, like how you grew up, how I grew up, we have different experiences. Those are specific experiences, but perhaps it will still lead to a common appeal, even yes. you know, with the specifics. Like, you know, how you just really, when I talked about, oh, you know, Asian soup-based, you know, noodle, and I saw your, you just said, oh, dude, we should eat together. <laughs> you know, you're obviously much younger than me. You were born and raised in the United States, but that appeal, There's a cool there, is, bond right, right, a there is a universality that stems from specifics. And we wanted to really deep dive with our polycultural research in terms of talking about that, not really to just lump everything together and say, here, here's one solution, but Really look at what are the things that are specific, what are the things that differentiates us, but at the same time, there's that commonality that might be interesting in terms of talking to any market for that matter, yes. but, but in our you know in my space, specifically to all the Asian American segments.
1: Okay, so I want to make sure that I'm clear on the difference between the multicultural versus the polycultural what I'm hearing is that multicultural is this concept that you can take the Asian American segment and then subdivide it again and assume that we're going to say, stay like pure blooded that like growing up, my mom actually did when I was really, really young, say that she wanted me to marry another Chinese person. And then eventually (laughs) she learned that that wasn't going to make me happy or that my chances were low that I would find specifically a particular ethnicity to be partnered with. So that opened up and uh, my first guest interview was actually somebody who is Filipino with a Latino husband and her family is mixed. So when we talk about polycultural, we're bringing in this assumption that you can't keep us separated as human beings. Actually, one of the, my favorite sci-fi fantasy books says that people are not marbles. You can't separate them by color after you mix them together. Like once you put them together in the melting pot that is America, it's very difficult to say that they're clearly one or another. So when we talk about more common threads and themes, that are themes of appeal, like polycultural sounds a lot more reflective of reality.
0: Yes, yes. And, you know, I don't really like to use this term too much, but people talk about like melting pot, melting pot, right? But mm. multicultural communities is no longer accepting that idea of melting pot nirvana. I mean, that's just a myth. And like you said, like more, it's never going to happen. So in that same analogy, we started to use that term, a salad bowl, because basically mm. the ingredients within that salad bowl, I don't really like that term, but <laughs> you get the analogy. A little bit easier to visualize. Yeah, the salad ingredients are individual and, you know, but. The reason that I don't like that term is that you're still using a sauce that is covered, right? There is uh, one sauce that is covering uh, all the ingredients. I have a little bit of problem with that, but...
1: <laughs> yeah, it, but, it makes it so like you're, you're like covering everything with the same flavor, yes, right? Like, yes, but at the
0: same time, I understand because the melting pot
1: nirvana analogy
0: was used for such a long time. I understand why it kind of evolved to the, the salad bowl concept but basically, and uh, in, in really the revelation is that becoming solely an American is not the end aspiration for any yeah. segments or, you know, it's specifically for, for Asian-Americans. I mean, there is so much dynamic experiences. And again, going back to Make Noise Today in terms of narrative plenitude is that there is such a multitude of experiences by, by us, you know, generational or even segment yes. or lifestyle, life stage um, experiences that especially for your generation, you guys are really becoming the protectors of being vibrantly colorful and hypercultural.
1: We try. Yeah.
0: <laughs> no, I, I, and I think it's just wonderful that, The younger Asian Americans are becoming hypercultural in terms of that. In our generation, while we were talking about, well, don't stand out, you know, Mm -hmm. I mean, don't be that different. Now it's like, wow, it's,
1: it's great. Yes. Or we talk about, like in the marketing world, having a niche is actually a benefit. And and in the the People of Color Space, we talk about the concept of what is your culture ad? And when you say culture, you usually think, okay, what is my like ethnic background? And what is my the culture of my family? So it's a very clear tie that there's actually value in what's different about us. And I would say that my generation, like I'm in my early 30s, that I agree that we're very much like working towards being that, that hypercultural because I would say for me, I, like born and raised here, there was a period in my life where in my teens and early 20s, I was actually trying to be like purely American without any of the qualifiers. Mm-hmm. And I've clearly learned that that's not, that's not bringing everything I am to the table. Mm-hmm. That's leaving a lot of my culture behind, things that I either don't want to forget or if like my parents cooked a certain meal that I loved as a kid and I still haven't learned how to cook it, I better go learn to cook it now. Because I'm at the stage where I'm I have enough perspective in my life of having tried to do one or the other. And now realizing that there's an opportunity to do all of it together. And then also because we have the internet and we're capable of sharing all of these with everybody, it's very obvious when we do it. Yeah.
0: And how wonderful is that? You know, going back to diversity and this different cultures, like bringing colors and and it just makes the world so much
1: more interesting. Yes, for sure. There are so many like Asian aesthetics that I hadn't looked at in a long while. And then I was working with someone in the branding space and talking about how I wanted to bring the Asianist out in my brand. Mm -hmm. And we brought up like Tokyo city pop style mm-hmm. and immediately he was like, Oh, that's so nostalgic. Things like sailor moon and all these yeah. things that like, as a kid, you forget that like things like Jackie Chan adventure existed. And then you go in, into the real world and you forget that like those were so influential. So yeah. it's so nice to yeah. be able but to you're bring them back. you going
0: too retro now. I mean, <laughs> they're talking about sailor moon, <laughs> Jackie Chan nostalgia. And Bruce Lee is like, it's almost ancient.
1: well it's it's the same way as fashion everything comes back around (laughs) yeah yeah and and i think that
0: what's great about culture and how it's almost like asian american movies in the hollywood it's like Mm -hmm. it used to be every 25 years like one movie and then the other one will be 25 years now i mean look at the the frequency of the content asian american content coming out not just in the u.s but how people have accepted content from from foreign countries like it was like when we started the business subtitles were like no they they were anthema you couldn't have them (laughs) right like if you subtitle anything it means that you're going to lose the audience
1: yes but now look at how people are in yeah we had shang chi and then we actually had bullet train recently Well, train the, the subtitles were a little fast still. <laughs> like, luckily, I understood Japanese, so it didn't matter. But these big numbers with huge celebrities yeah. now have subtitles as just the norm. There's no disclaimer on the marketing or anything. Yeah, and and it's great. And I think that it
0: became a kind of like a selling point for a movie that they're using, you know, authentic language mm, yes. and just subtitling it, and and like, or sometimes not even subtitling it because. The way that it's delivered is already, you know, you don't even need to have a subtitle because the delivery, you know that if this
1: person is angry or
0: you know, or <laughs> or loving it. So no, I will
1: say that like us as being in like this immigrant spectrum probably have better skills with the context clues than others who aren't forced to do that. But I agree that the, like I love that you're able to drop those in because I also see in like in anime like they do similar with English words. They'll just drop them in and they won't subtitle them into Japanese because they similarly expect us to be more in this global space now. Even if we we didn't know what the word is, we are potentially capable of just looking it up ourselves.
0: Yes, yes. (laughs) We should never underestimate the intelligence of audiences. That's basically how I feel.
1: Yeah, if they care about what it means, they're going to find out. yes. And I am thinking about it in terms of like when the geisha movie came out, there was a lot of backlash on like choosing certain actors and actresses that didn't fit the ethnicity that they were going for, for they weren't Japanese. So like coming away from that, and I don't know how long it's been since then, but at least a decade, this pure intentionality of being accurate with the dialect that you're using in the language, the ethnicity that your talent is for a particular role like we are seeing that a lot more and I agree that like that's become the selling point of like we are culturally accurate this time that we are willing to cross the lines that we weren't willing to do 20 years ago yeah yeah
0: and you're talking about the movie Memoirs of Geisha correct yes yes is there an episode two of our podcast I mean maybe we could talk about that (laughs) we might need one (laughs) (laughs) we could talk about that but You know, the geisha, the geiko, it's basically, Mm -hmm. I mean, we understand that culture in a very superficial way, right? Mm -hmm. And like that term geisha, there's a certain stigma to it. But if you go to, and and I'm pretty sure that you have experienced that if you go to Kyoto or to some of the cities that still have that culture, it's a very, very sophisticated culture, that geiko culture in terms of how you're trained to be that, person. yes, and I say this in a very loving way because America is my my home and my country is that people just like to oversimplify things, yes, and then just really look at the superficial part of it, and you know just just refuse to deep dive into understanding the sophisticatedness of different culture, and that mm-hmm. you know, I think that that's basically what you're talking about in that movie became kind of like a farce because I'm pretty sure that, and I hope that I don't get into trouble saying that, is that there there were white men making a decision in terms of who should be cast and what the script should be and said that this is going to sell. And it became such a horrible movie. <laughs>
1: it was extreme backlash. And I agree, extremely shallow in the portrayal because I do agree that like the culture is so rich and I love that Japan has that where they're so good about preserving Mm -hmm. their culture and teaching the next generation. They'll even have the little like five, 10 minute shorts as commercials of like, this is how you behave when you go to a shrine and these types of things that I didn't see for like Taiwan media. And like, I don't get a lot more like Chinese media in in my childhood. So I, most of my exposure actually to Asian media was through Japan. (laughs) Wow. That's interesting.
0: That's interesting. Now the Koreans are kind of killing it in terms of pop culture. Yes, but again, I hope that I don't get into trouble saying that. Is that but even Korean pop culture owes a lot in terms of the foundation of the Japanese pop culture.
1: Yeah, I would say that the East Asian geographical area is very good about borrowing each other's lessons and potentially the same way Americans when we had the Revolutionary War were great at like innovating off of what the British did. So we do it in East Asia a lot. We just pass the ball and I think it's not common for people to know that we have K-pop and then we actually also have J-pop for Japan. And then there's, I don't usually hear people call it teapot, but there is Taiwan pop. Yeah. And of course, there's, you know, let's don't forget Bollywood, which is
0: just, I mean, take the politics away and just look at how pop culture just really kind of borrow from each other and in in essence, get along. The world is, yes. would be so
1: much better. <laughs> I would have to admit that Asians are not amazing at admitting how alike we are, at least not like those who grew up in Asia. Like, I think in America, we're so used to being around each other that we, we just love what we love and we get to pick and choose. But our parents' generation is more of like, no, that like, oh, the Japanese stole our language for yes. from China or yes. whatever it is. Yes. So we're really bad yes. about... Admitting how much we have in common. Yes,
0: yes, and and you know stop really fighting over who invented what, right? I mean, from historically, I understand that you have to have that accuracy, but
1: that's another that's another topic another time. Those are assumptions, right? That people don't travel or move or intermarry across borders, or the concept of guess what? You can actually have three people arrive at the same invention at the same time. And this has actually happened with like Nobel laureates that they would have three people in the same science field come across the same exact solution at the same time and all get the Nobel prize. Yeah. Yeah. In some
0: ways we talk about like cultural, you know, appropriation and the backlash Mm -hmm. or, you know, whether or not it's appropriate or not. And sometimes I think that in the end it's about respect right yes. like it's about respect that you have for the origin or respect that you have towards the evolution of culture and um again diversity and cultural evolution makes things so much more interesting and again I go back to
1: it makes food so much more interesting <laughs> and then when people learn to blend i think i recently saw there was a chef that combined I forget what ethnicity the Asian food was, but they combined like Italian cooking with some kind of Asian cooking and was making these huge inventions on TikTok. And I don't know how they taste, but it sounds like a lot of people enjoyed seeing the, the blend of the cultures. Yeah. And
0: again, I think it goes back to the respect towards where you borrowed that, that's wrong. Yes.
1: Acknowledging it, doing the research, taking the nuanced context that goes into it, because like, it's almost impossible to fully respect every or like obey everybody's traditions all at the same time. It's very hard. Like I remember the Logan movie, there was the Japanese woman said that poking the chopsticks into the rice as if it was incense is like disrespectful or bad. Yes. And Logan was like, I don't understand. And she's like, I don't expect you to. You're not Japanese. And I tried to like adopt that lesson and I still, I I will still poke my chopsticks into my bowl. Yeah. You know, because that's
0: very interesting, like in the Chinese and Taiwanese culture, as you know, like sticking a, a, a chopsticks in a rice is basically paying homage to the death, right? Like mm-hmm. you, you only do that. So it doesn't matter. I've been in the United States for like 30, 40 years. I still cringe when I see Yeah,
1: it's ingrained in you're you. You're saying I'm dead, like by sticking that, that, that chopstick. It's bad luck. It's superstitious. Yeah. And I really feel like, I don't know if it's the case in China, but I know Taiwan, like my parents almost always like any life event that happens, there was some kind of superstition that we had to follow. And, and I loved hearing those because those are pieces of culture that I don't think I would have like been able to go research and find out about without them talking about them in front of me.
0: Yeah. And like you said, you, you shouldn't expect people to know, but I do expect people to respect that tradition right? And not say, oh, that's ridiculous. Oh, that's the most stupid thing that I've ever heard. You know, you don't have to understand it, but you do have to respect the culture that that follows that tradition. So
1: yes, there's a difference between when somebody informs you of a certain like cultural tradition and the way your reaction is, is either disrespectful and derogatory, or you can say, oh, that's actually really cool. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of what I want to do with this podcast is show like there's some contrast that we do across our cultures, but also what's really in common with each other. And then there's always some little tidbit that's just cool, cool fact. Not everybody has to adopt what we highlight, but it's great to like help us color and understand the the shifting perspectives that we have of why we don't all come to the table feeling like we have a common set of societal rules. Mm because we don't. We w- it would be easier if we did, but we don't live in that world anymore. And in some ways, you just explain the polycultural world.
0: <laughs> yes, <laughs> mission accomplished. <laughs> that evolution from multiculturalism to polycultural world, you know, we it's kind of a pity that this kind of discussion can take place without being too ideological or even political right mm-hmm. as a first generation immigrant sometimes I, I don't understand I don't understand but at the same time I I have to respect w- how it triggers something like you yes. know, this morning I was just listening to again another discussion in terms of um critical race theory being such mm-hmm. a you know a charged issue and I really don't understand why it's it's so difficult to have that point of view and talk about it and feel like it's so politically charged. And and I, mm-hmm. I do hope that podcasts like yours and people like you really encourage discussion and to not really make me understand per se, but at least allow me to understand your point of view.
1: Yeah. It's to ask the questions that we we take for granted that we shouldn't have to ask for whatever reason. I always go back to the concept of going back to my parents and asking why they don't like a certain thing or they don't understand when I get triggered mm-hmm. by something. Mm-hmm. And I know as a kid, like no expectation of kids to do this. But as adults, we have the opportunity to ask, hey, in, in your perspective, like, what is this like? Or why does like, is this normal for you if a certain behavior triggers me, but not them?
0: Mm-hmm. And in the end, communication. Yes. It's communication not really not really to change my mind or change your mind, but really to kind of understand your point of view and understand that there are differences in opinion and to have that conversation
1: you know yes to to have that open dialogue, which I think is 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 a transition most of us have to go through to recognize just how big of a deal like open communication is and hearing out the other person's perspective. And it's a big part of successful leadership, Mm -hmm. much less understanding your own background and heritage. Or if you're trying to understand a separate culture, like being able to talk through the times that you get frustrated with each other. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's the real world. Yes. (laughs) So sorry, everyone. You have to learn to talk to each other. Okay. (laughs) Yes. Come on. Get with the program. (laughs) 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 Well, Julia, it has been so great having you on. I do agree that if we find an opportunity to um, have you on for a future episode, we should definitely do that. Um, But I just had so much fun and thank you for joining us. Oh, the pleasure was all my, I
0: had so much fun and, and, you know, congratulations. Congratulations on everything that you have achieved. And I still need that note in terms of how to, uh, how to retire by 40. I need that. 40 has
1: long gone, but I I still need that. (laughs) We can talk. Okay. All right. Well, thank you. Thank you, TJ. I know that something in this episode left you feeling, Oh my God, that's so me. And I want to hear about it leave a review on iTunes or tag me on social media and share your relatable story with us so that we can normalize our experiences as Asian Americans and help more people feel safe to step outside of the box. I can't wait to hear about it. You can find me on Instagram at tj.wey. And don't forget to design your abundant life.